Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-doom, yeah! Today we're discussing signals. Are you going to trap them up? I'm Venom and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. So let's go over some history. Alright, history, because everything starts with history. Signals have been there since the very, very first version of Unix. They were just a bit different from what we know today, for many reasons, in fact. They went through many iterations of development and ideas, because they weren't good from the start. Today we have one single system call to catch all signals, but that only appeared in version 4 of Unix, and before that there were different system calls to catch different types of signals. And version 7 of Unix signals received a symbolic name for the number corresponding to the signal. What does symbolic name means? It means instead of having numbers we had names such as kill instead of 9. And that's an example. The kill command appeared early in version 2 of Unix. So that's just after version 1, there's version 2, if you didn't know. PSD, the PSD Unix, soon added the SIG user 1 and SIG user 2 signals to their version with the aim of using it for IPC. And I quote Ken Arnold here. This is a general principle. People will want to hijack any tools you build. So you have to design them to either be unhijackable or to be hijacked cleanly. Those are your only choices, except, of course, for being ignored, a highly reliable way to remain unsullied but less satisfying than might at first appear. So who's Ken Arnold to begin with? Why am I talking about him? He's a main contributor to the original Berkeley BSD, noticeably noted for his curses and term cap and the most widely used version of fortune and c tags and he says that because he knows his share of information about bsd and unix and talking about bsd bsd is really noticeable when we talk about signals because they implemented a lot of stuff a lot 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 of new things so in bsd 4.x they implemented the so-called reliable in quote, signals that don't reset unless explicitly requested to and also introduce primitives to block or temporarily suspend processing of a given set of signals. Why is that? Because before that we didn't have uh, those procedures to block signals and we didn't have reliable signals. So that's a step forward. And most modern Unix support both style, the old system V style and the BSD ones. And the BSD one handling is favored over the the old one for all new code that is written. And in fact, the modern Signal API is portable across all Unix version. It's a POSIX standard. However, and remember here, however, even though some Signal codes stay the same across Unix operating system, other Signal's code may differ. And we're going to talk about this in a bit. So in some signals have quite a history of design changes in the signal code and various implementation of Unix. And those changes were done partly because the early implementations were deficient or had some obvious flows. And also because the workflow around them gradually changed. But for now, don't worry about those little details of history. If you didn't, if you didn't get anything of what I just said, 
everything will be explained in the next sections and you'll be able to do some mental gymnastic to link back to this little history part. So that's okay. So what are signals? A signal is an asynchronous message or event that interrupts a running process. Okay, that's a nice definition. Well, they are intrinsically defined by their effect. So just by saying a definition, you won't understand what they really are. You need to know what they do. It means that it's part of its own definition. Signals are software interrupts, just like hardware interrupts. They nudge or notify a process, stop its normal flow of execution, and then the process decides what to do with the signal it receives. And for that reason, they can be used as a limited form of inter-process communication, or IPC. They're useful in the case where you need very small computational and memory footprint because the signals are implemented at the kernel levels. But, however, you cannot send messages inside signals. They're just a nudge, and that's about it. And signals weren't really meant to be used as IPC, but the BSD added SIGUSER1 and SIGUSER2 to allow such uh, actions to be done. Doing IPC this way more or less introduces more unexpected issues and is more complicated than normal IPC. As we've said, signals are comparable to hardware interrupts, which are nudges the hardware push when it wants to tell the CPU something. For instance, the disk input-output interface nudges the CPU when it finishes an operation. And when the CPU is nudged, the kernel handles it in an interrupt handler. It's just a, a function that chooses what to do based on the source and cause of the interrupt. So imagine it like even-driven programming, because this is what it is, even-driven even driven programming. One might wonder if there's a direct relation between hardware interrupts and signals. And that's a fair question to ask. And there is, in fact, one. And let's take an explanatory scenario. When a process attempts to execute any code that generates a hardware exception or failure, then the CPU will receive an interrupt from that piece of hardware. For example, if you divide by zero. Just like we mentioned, it's a hardware notch. And what's the next step after a hardware notch? The kernel enters the event handling routine, which here is the kernel exception handler. Now, depending on the situation, sometimes the kernel can handle the failure by itself and continue execution normally. Otherwise, in other situations, it has to propagate it. And what does it mean to propagate it? The kernel, in this case, de defer the exception to the faulty process in the form of a signal corresponding to the error. And this is, this is our signal coming into place. So the kernel pushes the signal to the faulty process. So the division by zero would send back to the process a SIG FPE signal. FPE stands for floating point exception. Or if the process wants to access an address outside of its me memory virtual address space, it would get a SIG uh, segmentation fold signal, SIG, SIG VE. Anyway, but it's important to mention here that that's only on x86 CPU, the, the, the two signals I just mentioned. And why is that? Because like everything hardware related, this differs from architecture to architecture. The mapping between those signal names and exceptions is 
dependent upon the architectures, since exception types differ between architectures. Another thing to mention here is how this affects asynchronicity versus synchronicity of the signal handling. And this depends on the source of the signal and the underlying reason or cause. Synchronous signals occur as a result of executing instructions that are error-prone or unrecoverable. Errors that need immediate handling, such as division by zero, like we just mentioned, those signals are sent to the faulty thread that caused the error within the process. And this is the type we mentioned above. And it's also referred to as trap, because the kernel initiates its trap handler. But the name trap is also used for any signal handler function, so it's just, uh, just a name. Uh, and on the, on the other hand, asynchronous signals are external to the process or thread itself. It's another process initiating a system call that will then push the signal to the target process. And we'll discuss the specific system calls later on during, the, during this podcast. Let's add that synchronicity is usually assured if it's the process itself that initiates the signal, even though it can be using system calls that are asynchronous. But like, like the synchronous ones, the asynchronous ones are usually referred to as interrupts. But again, the naming conventions are mixed, and you can use them interchangeably. But however, you cannot really assume that the signal will be handled synchronously or asynchronously. And that's one big issue. There are ways to make sure the messages are sent in order or synchronously, or at least to try to avoid the issue. And let's name those ways right now. So let's go over the ways that you can avoid the problems with synchronicity, or at least uh, try to avoid them. So first of all, you can try to suspend execution until a signal is received by using those two system calls, pause and sig suspend. So they will temporarily change the signal mask blocking signals, and then they will suspend execution until a signal is caught. Or you can try to synchronously catch signal by avoiding using si signal handlers and instead block execution until a signal is delivered using sig wait info, sig timed wait, and sig wait suspend. Or you can use something that is Linux specific called signal fd. And this gives you a file descriptor where you read from that file descriptor, and that file descriptor will change. Uh, and tell you if there are new signals coming into the process, so you don't have to be interrupted at any time. And last but not least, you can modify the signal mask, and that is to modify the status of a signal. You can change the status between being blocked, pending, or delivered. And when a signal is blocked, it won't be delivered until it's unblocked. It'll stay in pending mode in a kernel queue, so the kernel has a queue, with a bunch of signals for a certain process, and when the, the, those signals are unblocked, they will get delivered. And this mask is specific to the thread, and there are system calls to manipulate them. So you can manipulate those, uh, those masks however you want. But that poses the problem of a signal directed at a process and not a thread. The kernel will still send that signal to the process, to an arbitrary thread that doesn't have it blocked. So for example, if you block it in one specific thread and you, you have the other thread that accepts it, then it will send it to those other threads. 
And you can then unblock the handlers on demand and process the signals. Anyway, another benefit here. Blocking signals is extremely useful when you don't want your process to suddenly stop executing and, and critical parts of the code to avoid race conditions and interruptions. So we'll come back to this idea when discussing atomic instructions. And remember that, that, uh, that name, atomic instructions. So to recap those three or four way of handling uh, those problems with synchronicity, they mostly they mostly consist of blocking the process and or the signals and to wait so that you can safely pull new signals in by releasing the process or the signal. And there are many examples in the show notes. You can just check them. They're great. And those all introduce and in themselves more issues of their own. But that's it. What can you do? They have issues. Signals can come from many sources. What can be and is signaled exactly? It could be something executing the system code that transmits a signal to a process. So just calling, doing a system call to send a signal. Or sending a signal to the process itself, to the process unto itself. Or when a child process exits, it automatically sends a, uh, a signal. And when the parent process dies or hang up, when the program behaves incorrectly, or when the, there's a hardware failure. And each of those should have a unique signal name, at least to categorize them. Those abbreviated signal names begin with uh, SIG, SIG, and they have this prepended, this SIG prepended. So for, for instance, you have a SIG int, the signal interrupt, that is sent when a user hits Control c on the shell when a program is executing. So what are the standard signals? You can specify a signal by its number or, or by its name. The POSIX specify many signal names that are common between Unix operating system. However, the numbers aren't all portable. They might differ from one Unix-like operating system to another. So there are some that are portable across them and their numbers are static. And there are some that their number aren't static. So the ones with the number that are static are the following. Uh, there are not that many. There's SIG hop, which is one, which is number one, and it's used for line hang up, like when the terminal stops. And there's SIG int, that is number two, and the default action is to terminate. And the description, it's uh, it's just an interrupt, like with, when you do control C. There's SIG quit, there's SIG abort, uh, both of them, both of those last two, other than terminating the process, dumps a core dump. And there's SIG kill, uh, which terminates the process. And what's specific about it is that it cannot be ignored. And there's SIG alarm, which is in the number 14, and it's an alarm clock. There's SIG term, which is the default one that is sent when you use the kill command, which we'll see later. And it just terminates the process. And there are really a lot of, of signals here. The other standard ones, but that don't have uh, specific portable numbers. And I'm not going to mention them all. Let's just mention two or three. 
their six stop which also like sick kill cannot be ignored and it just puts the process in the background it stops execution there's sick count which is con which continues after being put in the background and i guess uh, uh, that's enough to be mentioned here you can check the the transcript or the show notes for more so there are five behaviors that the default handlers can have the default handlers can have five behaviors or they terminate the process or they terminate it and dump a, a core a core dump or they just ignore the signal completely or they stop the signal they stop the process execution or if they were stopped they can continue the execution those are the five behaviors that a signal handlers can have and nothing else that's just it and you can find more lists of signals with their description in the show notes. Again, I'm repeating it. I'm not going to mention them all. There's a huge list and they differ from one OS to one OS. And if you want to see the portable numbers, just check the, the show notes. Now, the, I just said that there are only five behaviors that the default handlers can have, but you can have custom ones. The behavior of those last signals are pretty fine. They're the default ones, but you can override them. That means having your own handler that catches the signal to do the things you want, such as clean, cleaning up the, the process before and before uh, stopping execution. So what's also particular about the different signals is that there are two that cannot be intercepted by the user or that cannot be overridden. And there are the six stop and six kill. Six stop, like we said, uh, always moves the process to the background and six kills always terminates it. And, and they cannot be handled, so stopping a process with six kill, for example, is considered a bad idea because the program cannot clean itself before exiting. So what is there to know about declaring a custom signal handler that overrides the default action? Like we said, that function is asynchronous, so keep that in mind for now, we'll return to that later. Remember we said there had been many changes to the signal interface? Well, here's one difference. There are actually two different flavors of signal handling. In older implementations, before early System 5, the handler for a given signal is reset to the default for that signal whenever the, handle, the handler fires. The result of sending two of the same signal in a quick succession is therefore usually to kill the process, no matter what the handler was set for and even it had unexpected behavior such as race condition and anomalies when sending multiple signals in a row. So that was really bad because uh, you cannot know if you're going to receive it in the handler or it's going to be the default one or if it's going to be in the middle. So which is why Starting from the BSD 4.x version, new reliable signals were introduced. Signals that don't reset unless requested. They also introduced primitives to block temporary suspend processing or given set of signals. So which is in fact the signal mask we mentioned earlier. The one which controls signals that are received by a thread in a process or by the process itself. So you can block some set of signals. So modern Unix support both style, but you should use the BSD style when you have the choice. 
and we'll discuss this new interface and what we need to pay attention to when writing them. And nota bene, the default signal handler also has a name, sig default. So when you pass sig default to the to the function we're going to mention, it's going to reset it back to the to the default one. The old system code, the one that is deprecated now, is the signal function. The new one, the one we care about, is the SIG action system code. And to catch a signal, you have to register this signal handling function to the kernel. So you, you pass to the argument of SIG action, first of all, the SIG number, the signal number, and then you pass a, actually a pointer to a SIG action structure, which and itself contain a signal mask and a pointer to the function handler of, of the signal. So you, you specify a signal number to be caught and a structure SIG action with the information related like the mask and the handler function. And in comparison with the older version of the signal handler, this one is more complex. The old one only had uh, only took as argument the signal number and the pointer to the handler function. So it was only two arguments and simple ones. Also remember to always use the signal names and not the number directly. As we've said before, only certain number only certain numbers are portable across different Unix-like operating system. So even though the argument is of type int, you need to pass the the name because it's defined somewhere in a and a header file. So now, what is there that is special inside this function? Apart from knowing that the handler are asynchronous and that sig kill and sig stop, sig stop cannot be cut, what's next? When you override signals, you should consider the rule of least surprise. They are conventional signal names and they are expected to act like their name says. Otherwise, the behavior you are sugarcoating over it will confuse the users of your program. For instance, SIG HUP, SIG HUP, a signal originally sent to a program on the serial line drop, like when the connection is interrupted, is often used to reinitialize daemons or reload the configuration files. So it's conventional to implement that signal handler this way. It is the existing existing model. So the same goes for SIG child that is used to check if a child process has exited to clean up after it. Also for SIG term that gracefully shut down and SIG user 1 and 2 used for special signal handling. And if you receive a hardware error, you can clean up and then create a dump by calling back the default signal handler that creates a dump such as a port. Also about sleep and alarm. Alarm arranges for a SIG alarm signal to be delivered to the calling process and seconds. But that's not always the case. However, you can't assume things. So go back to the rule of least surprise. Moreover, don't forget to document the later, to document any, anything that you, that you override. Because no one can assume the things that will happen when they are triggered, those signals. So. Let's mention something and then move to the specificities and inside the handler functions. And this thing is about threads, forks, subprocess signals. How should threads behave when they receive signals? 
What if a process receives a signal to which, to which thread is it sent? They have the same PID, so what? We already mentioned that every thread has its own signal mask, but what about the rest? What about everything else regarding signals? The signal disposition, that is how signals are handled, is the same within the same process, and it cannot be unique among threads. So the signal handlers are shared. Okay, what about children processes? They inherit the handlers and mask of their parents only if they are created with fork and not with exact. With the exact family of system calls, the handler are all set to the default. And also, a new child always starts with an empty signal queue. But to which thread is the signal sent? We didn't answer that question. When there are many threads in a process and you send a, a, a signal to this process and not to the thread. The signal isn't multiplied, it's not sent to many threads. So you can't assume that it's going to be sent to all the threads. Don't assume that, it's wrong. Only one single signal is sent. Is sent. So to which, to which signal is it sent? Let's start with synchronous signals, the one we mentioned in the first section, the ones that happen when a hardware error is encountered, for example. They are sent to the thread that initiated that error. So, okay, that's for synchronous signals. They're sent to the thread that did the error. For asynchronous signals, they're really, there's really no order. They are simply sent to the first thread found that isn't blocking the signal. It's more or less arbitrary. But in fact, it's sent, to the f it's sent to the first thread that isn't blocking in the PID hash stored by the kernel. And implementation-wise, that hash has no order. Hashes have no order. They're not an array. However, there's a, a pthread sig mask function that can be used exactly like sig prog mask to manage the mask and control what goes where. So you can block all the signals on other threads and only allow them in certain threads. And there's even a function that can be used to send signal to a specific thread and not a process. It's the pthread kill system call, but it should be used inside the process itself. And we'll see more of these uh, methods to send signals in a bit. Now let's move to what you do inside that handler. The key idea is that everything can be suspended at any moment when a signal is received. And thus, for maximum portability, a signal handler should only do a minimal amount of actions. Three things makes a successful calls to the function signal or sig action, assign values to object of type volatile sig atomic t, and return control to its caller. So what is this atomic thing and why atomic? Let's discuss this topic of atomic instruction. So this sig atomic t type is the only type that is guaranteed to be automatically read and written in signal handlers. Its size is undefined, but it's an integer type. So it's an integer, it's a number. It's the only safe type in the handler. Anything else that is non-atomic cannot be used with certainty. You also need that volatile keyword because otherwise compiler optimizations might mess up what happens inside the handler. However, some consider volatile harmful and not necessary because you might consider atomic to be something else. Anyway, overall, 
Other than that, you need to pay attention to whatever you're doing inside those handlers and to when they are called. Your program can be interrupted at any time. Actually, that's not even completely true. It doesn't have to be interrupted at any time. It can only be interrupted after an atomic instruction. So again, the keyword atomic, something that cannot be divided. Not all system calls are atomic and thus might uh, those system calls might be stopped right in the middle of what they were performing. So this is excruciatingly annoying when you were uh, doing input-output operation as you don't know what would happen when the process comes back if it returns from a, a signal handler. Will it continue the operation? Will it restart it? Will it ignore it? Or will it fail? Will it give an error? So every system or standard library function can potentially be interrupted. It's important to check the documentation to the related function you are using and maybe they have a safe version you can use or at least they might specify the behavior they have when they are interrupted so you know what could go wrong. And the safe functions are also called async signal safe functions and they are defined in POSIX actually. And you can find a list of them online, it's pretty easy. Overall you need to avoid side effects inside the handler. And one last thing to say is that intercepting signals on the shell is done using the trap command. And actually, the trap command is just like any implementation of signal handler in any programming language. So that's just one thing to mention. We've seen how to intercept those signals. Now, how do we send them? Other than self-generated errors, how can we intentionally create them? There are multiple ways. First of all, typing certain key combinations at the controlling terminal of a running process causes the system to send it certain signals. For example, Control c sends the interrupt signal, Control z sends the terminal stop signal, Control backslash might send the quit signal, Control t uh, might send the SIG info signal, but those are more or less default key combination that can be changed with the STTY command. And that's because the key sequence is defined and the terminal session itself. And remember we said that to propagate the signal two threads inside a process we use pthread kill. Well, that comes from the kill system call. This system call is used to send a specific signal to a process if permission allows it. And like most system calls, it comes with a shell command that wraps it and that's the kill command. So what permission do you need to send a signal to a process? It's quite simple. You can kill all your own processes and only root can kill system level processes and only root can kill process started by other users than himself. And there are other specific system calls to send signals, but kill is the most relevant one and the others are just wrappers around it. And for instance, there's abort and raise that are respectively used to send the sig abort and, and raise send, sends a signal to the current process. And on the command line, there are many utilities and helpers to help narrow down the choices to send to send signals. For example, you can send a signal from a process viewer such as top or htop 
you can send a signal using pkill using a program name instead instead of the PID. You can do kill all to do something similar to pkill, but to kill all processes with the matching name. You can use kill-l to list all the signals available on your platform. You can even check the signal mask of the processes to know which one ignores which signals. And you can do that using kill with an dash uppercase L and the PID to get the hexadecimal value of the signal handler. And on Linux, you can use the uh, slash proc uh, file system uh, and check the status of the of the process and verify the sig, the, 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 the signal in, inside that. So indeed, there are many ways to send signals and manage them. So let's also say that signals are a great way to do job control on the command line, especially with foreground and background jobs. But that's another topic for another time. Let's move to a discussion on BSD. If you, rem if you remember in the introduction, I talked about how BSD implemented reliable signals. Well, they've done a lot of thinking on that part not only about non-resetting signal handlers and adding the ability to block signals and control them in a flexible manner, but even more than that. Let's now recap now that you've got the hang of how signals work. And the C, uh, in the system C style, the old style, uh, you had recursive signal handling that is always allowed. You had signal handlers that are reset to the signal default prior to being called and the sig system call interrupt when a, a, a signal is delivered. Now in BSD 4.x style you had signals are blocked for the duration of signal handlers and a signal mask can be set to block signals during critical regions and signal handlers normally remain installed during and after signal delivery so they are not reset. A separate signal handler stack can be used if desired and most system calls are restarted following delivery of a signal. This all seems lovely but there's even more discussion that the BSD guys brought up. For instance, they've wondered and come up to the conclusion that signal catching functions should be reentrant. That means that it's a function whose execution can be restarted at any point without it being affected. And that makes sense because signals are mostly asynchronous. They've reached even on, on, a, on a higher level. What about shell scripts? What if you have a shell script running and that shell script calls sequentially multiple other subscripts and in the middle you press Ctrl C on the terminal? What will happen? How will the signal propagate? Will it stop only the current command that was running at the time? Will the parent script be notified of that signal? Those are all important questions to ask. They, they came up with three keywords for those. Immediate unconditional exit, when the shell itself exits Im immediately when it receives a, a, a signal like sigint. Wait and unconditional exit, it's a variant of the former. When the shell receives a sigint, for example, it waits for the child to exit. And if the sh child doesn't exit Im immediately, it remembers that sigint happened and after that it exits. And there's the wait and cooperative exit. It's like the wait and unconditional exit, 
but uh, it waits for the child to complete and figure out whether the program was ended on SIGINT and if so, only if it ended in SIGINT, it discontinues the script. So now different shells handle signals differently, but what we want is the signal to reach the current running process and then propagate to the parent if needed. And this is exactly what the wait and cooperative exit is. However, the parent won't be notified and it won't receive the signal of the child if this child process misses the signal handling. That's an issue in its own way because it's against the principle of least surprise. So they've come up with a sort of standard on how to properly handle signals. And that works somehow like a resetter of the handler inside the signal handler. But not really resetting. At the end of the handler you should call back the default handler for the signal receive using raise. So, so you, you just uh, recall the thing. So for example if you, if you created a custom handler for sigint, you have to uh, send a signal to yourself that is sigint to the default signal handler. And that's about it. It's fancy smart from the BSD guys. Kudos! There are other uses for signals. They can be used in other places. As we've said, uh, they can be a, a sort of bad way to do IPC. You can also use them to watch processes, like uh, the, what hap what's happening with them, what are they receiving. And there are even real-time signals for real-time operating systems. However, they're badly implemented on a lot of Unix-like operating systems, probably because they're only really implemented in real-time operating systems only, and that's their only usage. So let's conclude on that. Signals are tough, they're not trivial. And I assume they would be an easier topic to treat than what they really turn out to be. However, I'm impressed by how ingrained they are in the Unix history and how the BSD guys have added to them. Overall, they're pretty nifty but horrendous to handle properly, so, so beware of that. And don't worry, with a bit of trial and errors, your signal handler should work fine. Plus, you've now got the hang of how they work deep down, so you can debug them. Anyway. So let's move to the section where we talk about what we did this week and last week. So last week uh, we didn't give a podcast because I was super busy. Uh, I'm sorry for that. We'll, we'll, uh, I don't know. I think we should move to, to a more like... Uh, uh, interview-like podcast. I think it would be more interesting because the one we had about chocolate milk was really good. Now this week there was the Hacktoberfest, so it's a sort of a open source feast on GitHub, but some people don't like GitHub, but they're, they're, they're offering t-shirt for that and it, it lets you uh, find out new open source projects, so it's pretty good. And I, I'm still reading that Unix book I mentioned before, The Art of Unix Programming. And yeah, that's about it. I contributed to a lot of projects on GitHub. And uh, as usual, as usual, you can contribute. As usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the 
right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. And the last way would be to join me on the podcast. And you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nixers.net. And you, on this interface, you set your available time for the next week. And then the best time, the best common time is chosen. And you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link, podcast.nixers.net slash what, W-H-A-T. Or you can check the feed URL that I just mentioned, podcast.nixers.net slash F-E-E-D, podcast.nixers.net slash feed. So that's it about signals. Pew, 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 yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. This was the Nixers podcast with your host, Venom. Ta-da-da. Mm-hmm.